Open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're in the second half of chapter 6 today. And I've entitled my message, Keeping an Unobstructed View of Heaven. Astronomers here in the U.S. are facing a modern-day problem. The glare from the city lights threatens some of our largest telescopes. The glow from Los Angeles is rendering the Mount Wilson Observatory's 100-inch telescope ineffective. Even the 200-inch Hale Mirror, as it's called, on Mount Palomar, which at one time was the world's largest telescope, is being impacted by the din from San Diego and Los Angeles. Of course, now we're getting more pictures from like the Hubble telescope that is in outer space, but these still serve a purpose. To peer into the heavens, astronomers need to be distanced from local distractions, we could say. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Christians struggle with a similar problem in the spiritual realm. The lights, the lures, the attractions of this world can capture our attention and keep us from pondering off into the heavens. Separation from the world, distance, but more philosophically, separation from the world is a must if we are going to see God clearly. And in this passage, Paul gives us three rationales for being a holy and a distinct people. I recognize this passage may make some people swallow hard. It's a demanding, commanding passage about holiness, which is not often addressed in our world and in the church today, but we can't ignore the passage. We have to apply it to what it's telling us in the culture in which we're living. So let's reinvest ourselves in this passage of Scripture. Let's look at the first three verses and I've divided up the chapter according to the rationales. First one is Paul's plea for love. He loved the church. He's talked about it in the previous chapters we talked about. We've studied together. But here is his plea for love, verses 11 through 13. Oh, Corinthians, and that's a passionate plea. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. In other words, I've been very transparent. I've revealed my heart. I've revealed even the issues and struggles that I had in bringing the gospel to you. That's in the previous verses here in chapter 6. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open, but you are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own hearts, your own affection. Our hearts are wide open, Paul says, but your heart is closed towards me. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, and I speak as to children, you also be open. Open up your hearts to us, is Paul's comment to them. So the plea for love. First of all, Paul's affections are revealed. He tells them that he loves them. Paul rarely uses the name of the body, the church that he's addressing in the middle of his epistle, but he does it here. He rarely does that. And he only does it when he's emotionally charged. Let me give you the two other examples. 
In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, they were being led astray by the legalists, by the Judaizers. And he, in the middle of his letter, he cries out and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Who's deceived you? And he uses their name. He does the same, very different emotions, but emotionally charged in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, now you Philippians know that no other church shared with me in my need, but you only. So Paul is commending them and he's, he's emoting again and he's doing it in a loving fashion. He said, when I was destitute and desperate, you shared with me, you met my need. And he does it here in the book of uh, Corinthians. He says in verse 11, oh, you Corinthians. He's, he's pleading with him. He says, oh, you Corinthians, our heart is wide open to you, but your heart is closed toward us. So he's emotionally charged. He says, you are restricted in your hearts towards us. You're withholding love, he says in verse 12, towards us. After I've manifested and I've written about the love that I have for you, it isn't reciprocated. Paul is pointing out that the restraint in the relationship was on one side of the equation. It's on the Corinthian side. He loved the Corinthians. He showed it. He demonstrated it. He talked about his suffering in relation to bringing the gospel to them. But he says, you're not reciprocating that love. He says, my heart is warmed. By the way, you know, warmth opens things up. And Paul says, my heart has been warmed. and My heart is wide open. My heart is warm towards you, but you're cool towards me. It's good for us to do what Paul is doing right here, by the way. Paul is communicating his love for the church. He's telling them that he loves them. It's good for us to tell people we love them. That may be a note in the child's lunch. That may be flowers and a card from a husband to a wife. That may just simply be saying the very words, I love you. We can get out of the habit of doing that, but people need to hear that and we need to say that. And Paul is saying it to his brethren. He's saying, I love you, but you're not reciprocating. You're not responding to my love. We often say, love them while they're still warm. While they're still alive is the best time to express our love. So Paul's affections revealed. Second, the Corinthians' associations are revealed. What was the problem here? Why couldn't they reciprocate this love? The Corinthians' response was cool towards Paul for two reasons. Number one, the false teachers that had come into the church at Corinth had negatively influenced them and the worldly entanglements that were all abounding there in Corinth had ensnared them. So false teachers and worldly entanglements had drawn their heart away from the Lord, most importantly, and from Paul, his apostle. They were cool towards Paul. And Paul is confronting them about it. He says, what's going on? What gives? Why, why the reaction or lack of response? He's asking them. He's confronting them. Some people think that you don't love them if you confront them about a problem. But the opposite is true. Paul is confronting them about their lack of love for the Lord and their worldly entanglements. 
He's doing that because he loves them. Let's keep that in mind today. He's carefronting them. You've heard me say that before. The Corinthians' love for Paul, and more importantly for the Lord, had cooled down because of their continuing associations with pagan practices. Now, we've talked about this. Corinth was probably the most worldly, wicked city in the ancient world. The sailors cut off sailing around the southern part of Greece, and they would have their ships drawn across the land on the trolleys. Sailors were there for a short period of time, and there were a lot of pagan temples and a lot of prostitution, and it was a very wealthy city. Closest thing we could compare it to would be maybe Las Vegas today, but it was even different than that. People were passing through all the time, and so there was a lot of temptation there. The Corinthians were saved. The believers in the church belonged to God, but they were being drawn away back into the old lifestyles and the worldly entanglements that they were immersed in. And so Paul is warning them about their continuing associations with the pagan practices. Paul, you could say, is endeavoring to shoo away these unworthy suitors to this beloved bride of Christ. He's trying to drive away those that would win the hand of the church when the church belonged to Christ. These unworthy suitors. Being a Christian does not mean that you can't fall in love with the wrong things. Being a Christian does not mean that you can't fall in love with this world and even the wrong people of this world because it happens so easily. And the Bible reminds us we can't say, I love God and walk in disobedience. We can't say, I love God and walk in disobedience because the Bible says, if you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. So we can't speak out one side of our mouth and pursue worldly entanglements with our other side of our life. So the Corinthians associations are revealed and he is aware of it. And so he's appealing to them to repent of these entanglements and to leave them behind and to pursue Christ. So the plea of love from Paul, second, I see in verses 14 through 17, the principle of holiness. First of all, he contrasts the natures between a believer and an unbeliever. And he does it through quoting some Old Testament passages and he asks five rhetorical questions. Let's look at these verses, verses 14 through 17. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't yoke up. We get the word picture. Don't yoke up with unbelievers. And he asks these questions. For what fellowship hath righteousness with lawlessness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what accord or concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk amongst them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Paul asks five rhetorical questions, and the answer to every question is none. None. 
What fellowship hath righteousness with lawlessness? None. What accord hath Christ with Belial? None. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? None. The answer to all of Paul's questions is none. And notice the use of the nouns that he uses. Fellowship, communion, accord or concord, part and agreement. All describe individuals holding something in common together. And one of the words really describes it, that word accord is the Greek word from which we get our word symphony. So in a symphony, you have many different players or individuals reading off the same score of music and following the same conductor. If they're reading off a different score of music or following a different conductor, you've got chaos, you've got disharmony. That is the idea that we are individuals, but we all have things in common. And he's saying, you can't be a Christian and have all these things in common with unbelievers. Now, he's going to make it very specific in just a moment. Beautiful music is a result of different individuals playing from the same score, following the same conductor. And the apostles' appeal is for us to realize that as believers... We have different natures, values, perspectives, and desires than lost people. Now, obviously, we have a lot in common. We don't minimize that. But we have less than perfect marriages or less than perfect children or we struggle maybe paying all our bills or we tire of getting going to work every day year in and year out so we do have things in common but when it comes down to the essence the very core of who we are our very perspective on life our uh, values our desires they should be different than lost people so he's underscoring that how different we really are You know, in the Bible, relationships are always in perfect balance. God gives us the picture of relationships in balance, I guess, with the world I'm talking about. We could say over here on my left, you could put the word isolation. There are Christians down through the ages and still today who like to isolate from the world. They think the answer for me not to sin and not to get allured by worldly entanglement is to isolate myself. And you can think of monks and monasteries and nunneries, etc. They isolate themselves from the world. That's isolation. Over here on the other extreme is assimilation. If we're going to be in the world and they're going to come to our church or we're going to have any influence on them, we got to be like them. We can't be too weird. We can't be thought of as strange. And so they're assimilated into the world. So there's isolation, assimilation, but the Bible talks about separation. Being in the world, but not of the world. We got to live here, but its value system, the draw of the world should not capture our attention it's separation not assimilation not isolation in isolation you have no impact because you have no contact with the world it's hard to have an impact upon the world if you're out in the desert in a monastery in assimilation there is no testimony 
There's no testimony of being any different from the world. They look at you, they, live, they watch how you live, and you live just like a lost person. So there's no testimony, no contact, no, no testimony. But here, as I've already said, we're in the world, but not of the world. We live here, but we're, we're pulling people out of this world and into the next. And by the way, biblical separation is hard to practice. And it's kind of a seesaw thing. Sometimes we feel like we're getting too assimilated into the world and we, we have to pull back. And sometimes we feel like, well, I, I don't have any contact with lost people. I gotta, I gotta have some, I gotta have contact with the world. And Jesus did it perfectly. Jesus had contact with sinners, but he wasn't contaminated by sinners. He stood apart from them, and yet he ministered to them. They could see that he was different, but he loved them. It's hard to practice biblical separation. And by the way, in this life, if you truly practice biblical separation, it's probably going to cost you. You'll probably lose some relationships along the way. Sometimes even with family, sometimes at work, because they aren't going to understand why you practice biblical separation. They're going to think that you're, you're weird, or they're going to think that you think that you're better than they are, but you're just trying to follow the commands of God and not get assimilated, not get drawn into the world and captured by it. Because the problem at Corinth was they were going back and practicing some of the pagan practices of the temple. And they were losing their testimony as a church. And they were living like the worldly Corinthians with their marriages and divorces and sinful practices of adultery and that whole lifestyle. And he's warning them about it. First, there is a contrast in natures. We cannot deny that when we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, he changes us. We become a new people. We have a new nature. We have new aspirations, new goals, new desire, new longings, a new home. We have a different nature. Second is the command of Scripture. And it's pretty clear here. Look at verse 14. The first part of the verse, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's a command. Don't yoke up with lost people is what he's saying. Now, we'll talk about that some more, but that's exactly what he says. Don't yoke up with the lost world. What else does he say? Look at verse 17. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch that which is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, he goes on to say in verse 18. So there's a clear command from Scripture. In verse 14, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 22.10. It's an Old Testament passage, an agrarian, agricultural passage instructing the Israelites about, and it's a very practical command, God is telling them, don't hook up an ox with an ass. Why is that? This is kind of a practical command, and there were very practical commands. Because they were different heights, they have different gates, they walked at a different rate, they had different strengths. 
an ox and an ass are very different. He says, don't even try and do that because when you try and do that, you're going to have confusion. You're going to have chaos on your hands. And that's kind of a bit of the application. When we hook up with lost people, we're yoking up with them and we have different desires. We want to go in different directions. So don't do it. Save yourself the trouble is what we could say Paul is telling you. Save yourself the trouble. Don't even go there. So Paul applies it to the Christian life. Trying to yoke up with unbelievers is going to frustrate you. It's going to cause chaos in the church. Don't do it. I think you know that the history of the Old Testament, you could almost say is one long appeal from God or from his prophets to the Israelites to become a distinct people. To separate. He said to Abraham, he told Abraham to come out of the Ur of Chaldees. He told Lot to come out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He told the Israelites to come out of Egypt. Now in those passages, certainly it's talking about putting physical distance between yourself and those cities or those countries, but it's talking about a whole lot more than that. He's telling Abraham to leave the pagan beliefs, and Abraham was an idol worshiper in the beginning, if you recall. To leave the pagan beliefs, he's telling the Jews to leave Egypt behind, but to leave the gods of the Egypt behind. He's telling Lot to leave Sodom and to leave all the wickedness of Sodom behind. And none of them did it perfectly. We all know that from the stories. So it's not just talking about physical distance. It's talking about a philosophy. He's saying, don't be like the places I'm delivered you from. He's saying that to us. Don't be like the place and the philosophy and the thinking of what you've been delivered from. You've been delivered from that. Go on. That's what he's telling us. And the Old Testament prophets pleaded for separation from idols. The New Testament apostles pleaded for doctrinal and personal purity. And Jesus is pleading the same thing. As I said earlier, he did it perfectly. He had contact with sinners without contamination. So here's the exhortation. From Paul's appeal. This is the second appeal here. He's appealing to them on the rationale that I love you and I've sacrificed for you. So love the Lord. His second appeal is the principle of holiness. God wants a holy and a distinct people. So here's the exhortation. Do not form. This is the principle of of separation, of the principle of holiness. Do not form any relationship with unbelievers that will lead to compromise of your Christian values and testimony. Don't get in any kind of a yoke, any kind of a relationship, we would say today, with unbelievers that causes you to compromise your Christian values and your Christian testimony. Now, the primary application of this that Paul is writing to the Corinthians about is in the religious realm. He's saying you can't worship God on the first day of the week and go to the pagan temples and try and keep those gods happy the rest of the week. 
You can't say you're a Christ follower and be, be involved, as he mentions here, with Baal or Belial or the, any of the other uh, pantheon of the Greek and Roman God. You can't try and keep them happy and please God. Make up your mind. He's appealing to them about that. So the obvious context here is in a religious setting. That's why we say, as a church, as a group of believers, hey, do we have a lot in common with Mormons? Yeah, we're for the family and morality and, and uh, the Constitution or whatever it might be. We'd say, yeah, we have a lot of them. If the Mormon steakhouse or the Mormon temple contacted me and said, hey, let's do a religious meeting together. Let's do a religious meeting together and let's rent out Red Rocks and you can preach and then we'll preach or whatever. Can we do that? Of course not. Of course not. Because we're on different pages. We're on completely different scores. If I can say it without being blunt, we're following different gods. We really are. You could go through that with many other things. That's what the whole problem with ecumenical evangelism, it puts unbelievers together in a religious context with believers. It causes confusion and chaos, and God's not pleased. So the primary application here is in the religious realm. Paul's appealing to them to shun and to shoo away from and to deliver themselves from those religious entanglements that they were a part of and to become wholly devoted to Christ and worshiping him only. Obviously, there are some secondary applications. When it says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, obviously that's applicable in marriage. Now, if you're here today and you're married to an unbeliever, Paul deals with that and he says, stay married to them to the best of your ability because the unbelieving husband is sanctified or could very well be brought to Christ through his believing wife. He doesn't say just because you're married to an unbeliever, divorce him and move on and find somebody who's a believer. That's not what he says. But he's saying when you're, when you're making that kind of a decision, when you're making the kind of decision of, who am I going to marry? Don't yoke up with an unbeliever. Why? Because they're going to want to go in a different direction. They have different values. They have different desires than you do. Don't yoke up with an unbeliever. Don't marry an unbeliever. It could cause you great grief and great stress in your marriage. You could even apply it into a business situation. Partners in business. I'm not talking about working with unbelievers, but don't go into a business partnership with an unbeliever because they're going to want to spend money differently. They're going to want to do things for entertainment of their employees or functions differently. It will cause you problems. So he says, don't partner up with those people. Don't yoke up with them. You might work for them. They might work for you. But don't form a partnership with them is the principle in a secondary application. So we've seen the principle of holiness. Paul's second rationale, his second appeal to the Corinthians. He says that we have different natures. There's a contrast in natures, and it's clearly a command of Scripture all the way, and he's hearkening all the way back into the Old Testament. It's a clear command of Scripture. Now look at the third appeal and rationale in verse 18 of chapter 6, last verse, and the first verse of chapter 7. He says, 
If you do this, in other words, if you live this way, if you get this principle, if you follow what I'm saying, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Therefore, having these, holding these precious promises, holding these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, the very thing he's been appealing to them, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and filthiness of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So Paul's third rationale is this, the promise of blessing. If you obey God, he promises to bless your life in this very difficult thing that we try to maintain balance in. And he mentions the privilege of being family in verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Now, that doesn't mean that the Corinthians and the church were not saved. He said, I will be like a father to you. He doesn't say, I will become. God becomes our father when we trust Christ. We get that. God becomes our father when we trust Christ. But we enjoy that fatherly relationship when we obey him. And every person here has probably experienced that with their own father, their own parents, maybe we would say. Yes, I know I'm in the family, but when I'm obeying my parents, when I did what was right and when I did what was pleasing to them, I had the smile of their approval upon my life. They acted like a loving father and mother. I was undergoing discipline because I was living in obedience. That's the point he's making. Salvation means that we share the father's life. Separation means we experience the father's love. We enjoy the Father's love. And that's, this is not by any means the only place that this is mentioned. James chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Adulterers and adulteresses, and he's not talking about physical adultery here, spiritual adultery. Adulterers and adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Wow, that's a strong statement. He's saying, if you love the world, you've made yourself the enemy of God. Who wants to be there? Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity or hatred by God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Couldn't be stated any stronger, I don't think. So salvation means we share the Father's life. We get that. But separation is more than that. Separation means we experience the Father's love. And by the way, as this passage teaches, separation is more than negative departure, more than coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah or Egypt or the Ur of Chaldee. It's more than negative departure. It's more than saying no to certain worldly habits and sinful practices. It's more than negative departure. It is, as this verse says, it is positive identification. It is identifying with our Lord and Savior. Yes, it is negative departure, but it is positive identification. I identify as a Christian. The bottom line is, when I got saved, I want to represent Jesus Christ, is what we're saying. Positive identification with our Lord and Savior. Failing 
And we can get that from this passage. Failing to separate from unbelievers is foolish because it cuts believers off from the blessing of having an intimate relationship with God. That's what he's saying here in verse 18. You're still my children, but you're not going to enjoy the intimate relationship with God that we should have or we would have because we're living in disobedience. So the promise of blessing, first of all, he points out the privileges of being in the family. And then he goes on in verse 1 to talk about perfecting holiness. Perfecting holiness. He says, I will be a father to you and you shall be a son to me. Therefore, having these promises, understanding the promise, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He tells us to perfect holiness. We have imparted holiness, imparted righteousness when we got saved. But we're to perfect, that is grow in maturing is what we were talking about right up here on this banner says that we may present every man perfect in Christ that's Paul's desire that's the idea of mature in Christ perfecting holiness it's not enough to ask God to cleanse us what does he say here cleanse ourselves in verse 1 it's one thing to say God cleanse me take away all my sinful appetites and desire Okay, there's nothing wrong with that prayer, but it doesn't quite go far enough. He is saying we have to cleanse ourselves. We have to look in our life and say, now, God, are there things that are displeasing to you? Are there things that are contrary to your word? Are there things that are contrary to my walk of holiness? Because if they are, I want to cleanse myself from them. And I can't delineate all of them for you. The Holy Spirit can I mean, some things would be pretty obvious. We can all figure those out. But we can't come up with a legalistic list of all the things that are wrong and hand them out in church and say, nobody who's a member of this church should be practicing these things. We're not going there. We don't want to go there. Holy Spirit can convict you if you make yourself available to him and his conviction. Certainly, it is anything that makes it easy for you to sin. Anything that makes it easy for you to sin and to stay there is this issue right here. You need to separate from it. It's not helping you live a life of holiness. And by the way, notice what he says here. All the filthiness of the flesh and, it's implied, filthiness of the spirit. Filthiness of the flesh is the lifestyle of the old nature. And some of us lived... For a couple of decades or more, for some of you, many, several decades, with the filthiness of the flesh. The habits, the practices, the lust, the desires of the flesh. When I think of that, I think of the prodigal son. He said, Dad, I'm out of here. Give me my money. Give me my here." He goes off into the far off land, and the Bible says he wasted it with a profligate lifestyle, with prostitutes. We can imagine all the things that he was doing. Okay, so those are the sins, the filthiness of the flesh. The next phrase is filthiness of the spirit. That's kind of characterized by his older brother. His older brother didn't want to forgive him. He was unforgiving. His older brother was proud. I never did those things. His older brother had all the filthiness of the spirit. He didn't commit the same acts, 
but he had a lousy attitude. He had a lousy spirit. He was jealous that his dad was giving his brother a big coming home party. So he had jealousy, he had pride, he had anger, he had all kinds of filthiness of the spirit. And he's saying to us, we have to cleanse ourselves of both. By the way, I recognize I'm probably preaching to some people here today that struggle more with the filthiness of the flesh. And I'm probably speaking to the majority here that are going to struggle more with the filthiness of the spirit. But both of them are abomination to God. And both of them are antithetical to a walk of holiness and a walk of separation. What does he say? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh, filthiness of spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We all get that. Fear is not, oh, I'm scared to death. God's going to strike me down. Fear of God is reverence for, a great respect for. It's a great love for God that compels me. Paul uses that word earlier, that compels us to live a holy life. Because I love God and I want to please him, I have reverence for him and respect for him. I want to order my life that it's a life of holiness so I have fellowship with him and I have distinct testimony in this world. That's the appeal. That's the appeal. Many years ago, we had uh, here at our church, other location, Dr. Fred Moritz. Fred Moritz for many years was the director of Baptist World Mission. And I remember a service he was preaching at in our missions conference where he told the story that his wife was very pregnant and he was somewhere, got the call, and he rushed to the hospital. And he knew the doctor. He knew the doctor, maybe it was because they had, he had been with his wife to the maternity visits. I'm not sure or if he knew him personally through some other relationship, but he knew the doctor. And they basically both walked into the hospital at the same time. And so he said to Dr. Moritz, he said, hey, why don't you come in here and get prepped with me and we'll just both go into the delivery room. Dr. Moritz said, sure. Well, the medical doctor went to the sink and scrubbed up his hands and scrubbed his nails and washed his hands and rinsed them off and Fred did the same. And then Fred's ready to go in there. His wife's having his first baby. And, and the doctor said, no, we're not done yet. And he scrubbed up his nails and used a little different lotion and washed them up again. And Fred said, basically, after about the third time, he said, doc, let's go. She's going to deliver. She's about to pop, you know. And, and the doctor said to him, I deliver babies. And I assume he probably put gloves on. He said, but in delivering a baby, I have to prep for the delivery. And that's why I scrub up my hands. I want to be able to receive that baby with clean hands and not transfer anything to that child. I remember him telling that story and thinking in my own mind, I want to receive people in new birth. I want to be there to catch the fruit that God delivers to Red Rocks Baptist Church or to this ministry. I want to have clean hands so God says, I can place into your hands young ones, new ones, new births, the fruit of spiritual labor of others. I want to be confident that they're received into an environment that's going to help them grow. And so cleanse your hands of all filthiness of the flesh and filthiness of the spirit. Cleanse our lives of those things. If you want to bear spiritual fruit, 
There is an aspect of holiness, and we don't use the word a lot, but the idea of separation from the world that is undeniable in the scriptures. We can't live like the devil and ask God to use us. God calls us to be a holy and a distinct people. If we're going to keep an unobstructed view of heaven, we have to separate from the lures and the lights and the attractions of this world and not get entangled in them. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Hard for us sometimes to swallow it, to accept it, and to certainly to practice it. There's always that dynamic tension, Lord, that we struggle with, being in the world but not of the world. And so may your Holy Spirit help us to maintain a distinctly Christian testimony and yet not appear to others that we're holier than thou, that we're better than others. Lord, help us. Help us to evaluate the things that we participate in and the places we go, and that we would not be being drugged back into the world in its entanglements. We need your Holy Spirit's help. It's his insight and his fortification. Just before I close my prayer, maybe if God is speaking to you today, as you examine your life and you say, you know, as I think about a couple of areas, I'm convicted, I'm uncomfortable, and I realize they need to go away. I need to forsake them so I can perfect the fear of God and holiness. Maybe you're here today, let me add this. You're not sure if heaven's your home. You're not sure you're even born again. Allow us to help you settle that big, big question, the most important question. Seek us out even today. Father, we commit ourselves to you. Continue to do your work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.